The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another segment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, we have done a number of programs about archaeology in different parts of the world, and uh, one of the areas that uh, brings on a lot of attention, especially for people from that part of the world and for Americans who are from Ireland is Irish archaeology. And we did an earlier show about Irish archaeology, and I was uh, surprised. Well, I will introduce the guest first before I get into that topic. My guest is Dr. Susan Johnston, who is an archaeologist and anthropologist specializing in Irish prehistory at George Washington University. She uh, received her Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania and was intensively involved in the analysis of prehistoric Irish art. She has been engaging in active excavations at the royal site of Dun Alinea and has been excavating there between years 2006 and 2008. And she is uh, especially focused on topics of religion and ritual and their presence in the archaeological record and in the public imagination. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Johnston. Thank you very much. So what I was overly enthusiastic <clears throat> excuse me, about talking about before I appropriately introduced you was the fact that we had a program on uh, Irish archaeology, historic archaeology, and it was undertaken by a professor named Charles Orser. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I'm familiar with his work. I've never met him personally, but yeah. Okay, and one of the topics that was so striking, which he discussed at great length, was the fact that the Irish themselves were not all that interested in the historic archaeology of their own country. And he didn't understand why, um, but he mentioned when he was discussing that, particular topic that a lot of Irish Americans were actively interested in the type of work that he was doing because of the transatlantic connection and the roots of the issue. And I found it very, very unusual that that was the situation. And he told me that once he had essentially gotten the ball rolling in many, many ways, uh, a lot of Irish archaeologists from Ireland were uh, starting to develop a certain enthusiasm and interest in what was going on in their own backyard. Are you familiar with this at all, or is, is this something that's a surprise to you? Um, it, it doesn't surprise me in one sense, and that's because I think a lot of people don't think about historical periods when they think about archaeology. Uh, most people think about archaeology as being sort of digging things that are way, way, way in the past. Um, I sometimes, I, I also, in addition to working in Ireland, I also worked for three years um, doing archaeology in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. um, that the state of, and um, uh, one of the most interesting sites we worked on um, the was from the late 19th century and then had actually been inhabited um, 
it was a station master's house in a town called West Kingston, and it had actually been inhabited um, until the 1940s, at which point they actually literally moved the house across the road for various reasons. So we were actually digging on the original site. And mm-hmm. people are, it was a fascinating site, and people were amazed that I could do archaeology from something that recent. So I, I suspect that might be part of it. Um, it. Not so much, I mean, certainly the Irish public is very interested in, in the archaeology of, of prehistory. Um, so uh, my guess is it's less about sort of a, a lack of interest in archaeology per se as it is um, something having to do with not thinking about that as, as archaeology. A lot of people think that once you have history, you don't need archaeology anymore, but that's wrong. Well, I, I like to think <laughs> I like to think that our audience is a little more sophisticated than that because we have brought up a number of topics uh, related to certainly historic archaeology. We've discussed the organization and uh, the SHA, and we've discussed uh, these types of issues with the president of the SHA. But I think you, you put your finger on it. And the other thing, of course, is a, a tremendous enthusiasm on the part of a very widely dispersed Irish American population in their own family roots. And I think that uh, Orser sort of tapped into that. And he even mentioned that once his work had gotten out, then a lot of Irish Americans sort of flocked over to Ireland just to see where they came from. And I think to, to some degree, it's a question of identity archaeology more than anything else. Would yeah, you agree no, with I that? think you're right. And I wasn't talking about sort of your audience so much as I was thinking about the general public, that a lot of people in the general public don't even know there is such a thing as historical archaeology. So well, there's I, I no question that. about that. And uh, I think that as we uh, have issued more and more broadcasts and changed our focus into the broad range of fields that comprised archaeology, that we're getting a, a, an expanded interest, shall we say, in, in, in many of the areas of it. Now, is there anything that brought you in particular to the study of Irish prehistory? Um, well, I... Um, Started in graduate when I actually went to graduate school uh, to begin with. I was sort of interested in Egypt and and stuff like that. Usual, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, I started. I had to take sort of the general courses that you take as a first year student. And uh, one of the courses I took uh, was taught by Bernard Wales, and he was the man who uh, started the excavations at the site of Donalia originally back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, um, and. Uh, it initially started sort of as general European archaeology. I, I was really interested in, in Europe because um, it, it, Europe before kind of Greece and Rome is very different from a lot of what happens in a lot of other parts of the world. So you think about places like Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Maya, um, they sort of, they're hunter-gatherers and then they develop villages and then they develop cities and then they develop states and and those are all very interesting, but in Europe there's something else going on, um, particularly temperate Europe, Europe north of the Alps. And so um, I was sort of interested in that, trying to sort of wrestle with this idea of how do we talk about um, a society in which the, the the social changes that we're seeing seem to follow a different kind of path. So I started out just being interested in Europe in general, and then um, I was just looking to get some some digging experience, and ended up uh, at a site. Um, be at, in Ireland called Nauth, which is the site of a large megalithic tomb um, that the the guy who was doing that excavation, an Irish archaeologist called George Ogan, he was friends with the guy who was my advisor, and so he hooked me up, and, and so I went over there and got interested in sort of the problems and, and issues that were involved there. Um, so I, I guess in my head, the Irish situation is sort of an extreme version of Europe uh, in the sense that what's going on in Ireland is in many ways even different from what's going on on the continent, although they're all connected. Um, the specific social changes, the specific ways in which identity is expressed, all that kind of stuff just seemed very, very interesting to me. So that's kind of how I ended up in Ireland. Plus, as I tell people, they speak English and they drink beer, which are not bad <laughs> things from a field perspective. <laughs> Well, well, they certainly they certainly drink beer. The English is sometimes a little difficult to understand, but but if you're based as I am here in New York, you get used to it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, 
the fact of the matter is, though, that you're right, certainly about the uh, archaeological record being a bit different. I would, well, let, me, let me talk about that a little bit because okay. uh, I don't know very much about the Paleolithic in, in Ireland. I can't imagine that within that context it's all that different, is it? Or What's, what's the nature of the archaeological record sort of for, for early prehistory? Uh, well, the, the Paleolithic per se, that is the old part of what's the, the, the Stone Age, um, there is none in Ireland, um, which I also consider to be a positive advantage, um, mostly because uh, during that part of uh, the Pleistocene, uh, it was covered in ice uh, because of glaciation. So um, the earliest evidence in Ireland actually dates from the Mesolithic, uh, so probably around seven, 8,000 um, BCE. So, um, so there's no Paleolithic. Um, people uh, moved into Ireland then once things began to warm up in the hollow. People are moving in from various places, probably uh, largely Britain, but also probably the continent. Um, and uh, so then you start to have farming and things like that, maybe around 4,000 or so. Um, and then from then on, you sort of get you know your your Bronze Age or Iron Age, and then um, that's when you get into sort of the historic period. And then once you get into sort of Christianity and things like that, that's sort of the thumbnail sketch. Um, so in that respect, it's a lot. It, it's very similar in a lot of ways to what's going on. Once you once people get there, it's very similar uh, to what's going on in Britain, um, and and then for that matter, what's going on in sort of the northwestern part of of Europe. Um, a lot of those areas were in contact, which is part of the reason why a lot of it's in, uh, simpler. Um, there's considerable evidence now emerging, for example, that Ireland was in particular uh, connected sort of along that whole Atlantic seaboard, um, that uh, it was sort of a highway in which a lot of things seems to be traded, and starting from things like flint, moving right the way up to particular kinds of metal tools and, and metal resources and stuff like that. Um, so in that sense, it, it kind of tracks along and, and probably would have stayed very similar were it not for the fact that the Romans then ultimately come along during the Iron Age and conquer much of Britain and, and, and much of Northwestern Europe. So uh, once they're doing that, Ireland is sort of participating in the sense that they're probably trading with the Romans and things like that, but they're also kind of doing their own thing and, and continuing in their own sort of trajectory. So, so they're sort of a version of a similar kind of thing up to that point, and then at that point they begin to diverge in kind of interesting ways, to me anyway. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, obviously, um, however, there is... There is some Paleolithic information in, in, in Britain, that's for sure, but oh, I, I, assume, yeah. I'm, I assume that's probably south of the, uh, the well, what would be the equivalent of our late Wisconsin and advance here in North America. I, I haven't even considered that widely, but yeah, I imagine that the glacial map of Ireland is pretty well mapped out, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's if you sort of look at the extent of, of glacial ice, it goes, there's a tiny little bit right in the, the uh, southeastern part of the island yeah. uh, that isn't covered in, in, in glacial ice. Uh, but right. above that, it's pretty much, it's pretty much not habitable. Um, so it wasn't until that receded and, and um, the temperature warmed up that you really have any habitation. So, uh, getting back to, I, I guess most people would would make a a sort of a generic association, maybe just even in, in a very public way, that the story starts really with the megaliths, and you're looking for some kind of association between, say, what's going on in Ireland, and obviously the uh, logical example being Stonehenge across the. Uh, Across the way a little bit. Uh, what is our earliest good site in Ireland that would sort of serve as a benchmark for um, looking at developments in prehistory going forward? Well, if you mean sort of in, in terms of megalithic stuff specifically, um, no. you start to get um, the same kinds of. I mean, Stonehenge is kind of. I mean, on the, in one sense, Stonehenge is like. Uh, all other megaliths in that uh, it's a stone ring it's and all of that but it's yeah. it's got those cross pieces which are as far as we know unique um so it's it's a little bit different than a lot of other ones but um the all of the the uh, megalithic sites in britain uh the, are very similar to the ones in ireland you've got the stone rings of various kinds you've got single stones you've got lines of stones and and in particular you've got stone tombs um, and uh, those are you start to see those um, probably 
Uh, I'd have to double check my dates on that, but my guess is around, I know for sure, by, by the fourth millennium. Um, and there, there may be some sites dated earlier than that in Ireland. I'm not abs- I know there was one that was claimed that was really early around the, like the uh, 6th or 7th millennium, but I don't think that one's widely accepted. Um, okay. So, you know, sort of 4th, 5th millennium, you start to see people sort of building these big stone tombs and things like that, um, which goes with uh, uh, the various evidence you have that during the Neolithic of, of people living in, in houses and, and farming and all that kind of good stuff. So, um, so it's, it's a pretty uh, dramatic sort of encroachment, if you want to call it, of the archaeological record. It's, it's coming in sort of at a more developed rate than it would, say, in, in parts of Central and, and Southern Europe, where you can really track sort of uh, tens of thousands of years when you're especially south of the, of the ice sheets and looking at that. So it, it, it's got to be pretty dramatic a little bit, uh, don't you think? I mean, looking at um, megalithic and uh, mesolithic, I assume you have mesolithic or is there not, yeah. not much of that? So that you're starting to look at sort of the later phases of a transitional series of industries between um, what, what we would call the Mesolithic and, and the Neolithic. And uh, is that the kind of time frames that you're dealing with? Um, mostly that's earlier than what um, I have dealt with. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got sort of people moving in during the Mesolithic into Ireland. You know, it's it's an empty space, essentially, at least as far as people are concerned. Um, so, you know, kind of there's at least by now a good uh, probably half dozen or more really well-known Mesolithic sites. Um, and then you've got people then moving in probably again during the Neolithic, um, bringing, bringing domestic species and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, you could argue the point, I mean, in the sense that it's, I don't know that it was inherently any faster, but certainly the dynamic would be different. I mean, the difference between people moving into this region and there's nobody else there. So it's not like they have to deal with an existing population or or anything like that. Um, And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it, you know, the the pace of the Neolithic is probably about the same, Um, but certainly it's it's more, I guess, telescoped maybe in a sense right. uh, that you haven't got like tens and tens and tens of thousands of years like you do in Britain for example um, and you know I mean you've got no you've got nobody for example in, in Ireland that isn't modern human whereas there are some remains from Britain that are human ancestors and stuff like that so yeah you don't get that in Ireland um, and so this part. is where it becomes really kind of interesting because you have a later onset of a human footprint, if you will, and then the obvious connection is uh, the changes in landscape, which would seem to be especially important as you have sea level rise. And it, it, I would assume that in the beginning part of the periods that you're looking at, there was probably some travel or communication uh, to to the UK back and forth because some of those areas, I assume, would be probably but uh, uh, non-marine, if you will. They were probably walkable. Is that? Oh yeah, in, connected. Yeah, across. Uh, yeah, across the Irish Sea and, and like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they just uh, particularly, I mean, there seem to be particularly connections sort of to Scotland, because if you sort of think about where Ireland is in in detail, um, and then, yeah, into Britain uh, as well. So, yeah, certainly there would, I think there was, uh, what, certainly there was more land available to cross, and even the, the ocean at that point was not nearly as large and terrifying as it would be now for somebody in a dugout canoe. Yeah, and the other thing, of course, that's very interesting here is as the uh, Holocene uh, grows, um, as the Holocene expands through time, then you're having these very subtle marginal landscapes with uh, major uh, ecological resource zones that are available and constantly changing probably through the first several thousand years, uh, bridging the Mesolithic until the later period. So the geography is just so completely dynamic. I would think that this is a really interesting a period for people who are interested in landscape archaeology. Oh yeah, I would think so. And I, I you know, you, you think about it just in terms of human experience. I mean, I, I always try to sort of when I teach this to my students, I always sort of try to de-emphasize this as like an event or a single thing. It's like not not like people suddenly woke up one morning and all the sea level had risen. But right. that said, it must have been this incredibly sort of dynamic relationship and, you know, over, you know, you think about people passing down information, for example, over a couple of generations about resources and places to go and good places to get fish or good places to get whatever. Um, And that, you know, that's not true anymore. You know, oh, yeah, Grandma said there used to be a great lake here, but now, you know, it's not as big anymore or something like that. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah. And, and and over there, the geographic zonation would have been so subtle and variable as time goes on and very sensitive to even minor changes in climate and in uh, landscape, uh, landform distribution. So that must be exciting. But let's get back to your work. Tell us a little bit about, about your site. Uh, my, where we've been working is, is, is much later, um, and in the, uh, the site itself is located on a hill um, in County Kildare, which is um, driving time about an hour south of Dublin um, on the sort of the eastern side of the island. Um, and uh, the site itself, uh, the hill itself, has been was used actually from the Neolithic. There is um, there was a Neolithic burial that was recovered there, and an enclosure that was probably Neolithic also. Uh, that was uncovered. So, so the history of the archaeology at that site is um, as the guy I mentioned before, Bernard Wales, excavated there um, between 1968 and 1975, and they found a bunch of stuff right on the summit of the hill, uh, and um, that included uh, this Neolithic burial and Neolithic closure. There's also a Bronze Age burial too. So it looks like um, people were were sort of drawn to that hill for various kinds of ritual, maybe other reasons. Um, it is sort of the highest uh, piece of land in the area, so maybe that's why uh, it attracted attention. Um, but during the uh, the Iron Age in particular, which in Ireland is um, uh, about 600 or so um, to usually considered the 5th century um, uh, CE, so uh, Christianity comes to Ireland somewhere probably in the four early 400s. Uh, there's a lot of debate on that point. That's a whole other show. But um, right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, who Patrick was and how many there were and all sorts of things. But uh, but in any case, usually that's sort of the conventional end of the Iron Age. So somewhere in sort of the, the last few centuries uh, BCE and the first few centuries CE. Um, and uh, so the site, this site, um, that was when it really saw its big fluorescence. And um, his excavations... Uh, Bernard Wales' excavations showed that there was a series of timber structures that were built on the top of the hill um, that appear to be largely ceremonial in function. There's there's no evidence of habitation. There's no domestic debris, anything like that. Um, it, there's no. It would not. Have, they're too big to be roofed, um, so they're not sort of really huge houses or anything like that. Um, and so that suggests some kind of a ceremonial use. Um, so, so he sort of focused right on the summit of the hill uh, and did that work. Uh, and then um, uh, myself and also um, Pam Crabtree, who's at New York University, um, and also some archaeologists um, from um, the National University of Ireland at um, Galway, uh, we put together this remote sensing survey, uh, which you sort of mentioned. Uh, that was the, what we did between 2006 and 2008. So we went up to the hill uh, and used um, a magnetometer to survey the rest of the interior. So I, I sort of did a rough calculation. Wales's excavation sort of uncovered about 10% of the site, um, but it's a, it's a large site. Um, it's, it's surrounded by a bank and a ditch, um, probably about 13 hectares in extent. So there's a, a lot of space in there that uh, Wales's excavations didn't really uh, look at. So we were interested to see what else we would uncover. So over um, three summers, we, we did a survey of the interior, and indeed we found tons and tons of um, new features, some of which we could actually connect with the ones that um, Wales had uncovered, um, some of which are, are entirely new. So, so that's what uh, we're trying to do now, is we want to go back and investigate some of those areas that we found to try to understand uh, what's going on up there uh, and try to connect that to uh, what we know from the other excavations. So um, this summer we're going to start um, what will hopefully be something which will continue in the future. Uh, we're going to run a field school um, up at the site, which um, in, in theory is open to anybody who wants to come, but uh, in practice uh, has ended up being predominantly students from George Washington University, where I am, uh, and also New York University, where Pam Crabtree is. Um, and uh, so we're going to go up there and try to investigate some of the things we found um, through the magnetometer survey. So we're very excited. And we will be back with our discussion on later Irish prehistory with our guest, uh, Dr. Susan Johnston, right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Dr. Gladney Radio Show every week for enlightening, provocative, real conversations, advice, and tips that you can use to improve your life. If you feel overwhelmed, confused, stressed, or lost in the cycle of life, this is the show for you. Dr. Gladney and her guests will help you repair, manage, and create an amazing life. No topic is off limits and is discussed with real solutions on our show. That's the Dr. Gladney Radio Show, live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are talking to Dr. Susan Johnston, who is an archaeologist anthropologist from George Washington University, and her specialty is Irish prehistory, which, as we discussed in the uh, earlier part of the program, is a shorter span of time than uh, prehistory in other parts of Europe in large measure because the glaciers essentially covered the landscape and so that the ice-free area was not as big, nor did it uh, nor did it extend as far back into time as it would have in other parts of Europe. Uh, Dr. Johnston has been working on a site called um, Dunalina, and we have talked about the. Uh, 
types of methods and the types of strategies that have been applied to that site, which was excavated in the early part of the uh, 1970s and I guess even the later 1960s. Uh, Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit about the ways in which your methodologies mark a change in the approach to archaeology for that site versus the way the site was dug uh, well nigh, I guess, about 50 years ago. Yeah, almost, yeah. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, the well, the main thing it's it's kind of an interesting thing because uh, at one level, um, digging is digging. Uh, you know, you have to you have to get a trowel and you have to get dirty. Uh, but what has I think what's changed significantly um, is. On the one hand, some of the technology that we have available um, just for sort of pinpointing where to go. So it's interesting. Um, in 1967, they actually did a remote sensing survey over the whole interior, um, uh-huh. which in 1967 was like cutting edge hot stuff, and they essentially found nothing. And they 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 target. They found a few areas that seemed to be a little bit kind of you know maybe interesting. Um, they dug a little bit. They didn't really find anything. So they said, well, that was kind of interesting. And so, and then they went on and they they focused predominantly on the summit, which was where most of what they found um, ultimately turned up. Um, so it, it's interesting. We then come along, you know, almost uh, yeah, from between. 67 and 2006, um, and the the technology that we have available suddenly turns up tons of features uh, which you know did not show up on the earlier on the earlier survey. So clearly, the technology that we have available um, for us now to, to sort of pinpoint features, or indeed in, in other settings to pinpoint sites and things like that, um, is much better. And I, I, it's to me, I mean, as somebody whose career has sort of spanned when we really didn't have a lot of that technology to have having that technology now, uh, it's really changed things a lot. I, I, I have to say it was very nerdy, but it was a lot of fun doing the remote sensing. So you'd stand up there and you'd be up on this hill for eight hours and walking around behind a machine that goes beep beep every now and right. then and yeah. then you sort of you feed it into a computer it's like magic and then you know all the the numbers get converted to grayscale and suddenly you're looking at a map of features under the ground and it, it, to, it to me it's maybe I'm just naive but it just is amazing stuff I find it very very cool um, so so I think that certainly has helped um, one of the big issues they had in the earlier excavations um, was radiocarbon dating because uh, on the one hand the site uh, has con- been continually sort of redone. Um, so during the Iron Age alone, there are sort of at least three and, and f- probably four kind of major um, structures that are built up there. So they're taking them down and they're putting it up. So they're m- totally messing up the stratigraphy and so on. Um, and so if you're collecting samples for radiocarbon dating, back in the late 60s, you needed what they used to call a good handful of material. You know, you're talking about, you know, a good a good say, two cups of stuff uh, right. in order to get a decent date. Now, with uh, our ability to measure things directly, you know, you can actually measure the, the specific amount of, of carbon-12 and carbon-14 and so on. Um, so, you know, you need just tiny little bits. So one of the things we're hoping to do is sort of refine some of the chronology, too. Uh, we want to take some uh, radiocarbon uh, dating samples from some of the features up there, and because we're able to just take minute little bits, um, we can be much more precise about what it is we're dating. Uh, because the, the radiocarbon chronology from the earlier uh, excavations was largely a mess. Um, And that's probably, as I said, because of the way things were churned up and because of the need to kind of consolidate enough material to date. Um, So I think there's that. And and it's it's also not technological. I think just it's because of um, differences in how we approach our analysis of what we're looking at. So the interpretive frameworks have also changed differently, and that's because of work that has been done since then. Um, so when Wales was doing his excavation, people were generally thinking about um, sites like Denalnia. So let me just back up a minute. Denalnia is one of four uh, very large sites that are sort of sprinkled in uh, four different places in Ireland um, that share certain significant similarities. Um, And they are um, clearly sort of the largest sites in the landscape in those areas. Um, So when 
they were doing the excavations at Dunalanya, they were thinking about these as sort of clearly um, sort of major political centers, maybe sort of the beginnings of, you know, a town or something like that. And then they excavated and they said, well, clearly there's no evidence for that, but maybe these are sort of the places for kings, which is why they start getting, they start calling them the royal sites and, and all of that. Ah. Okay. Um, that's part of the reason. There's also there's some documentary. Interestingly, um, there's also some documentary evidence back in the eighth century. Um, monks that wrote about these sites um, also thought that they were the places of kings and things like that. Um, now we're thinking in somewhat more kind of subtle, nuanced sort of ways. So certainly we can say it's a major site. Certainly it would have pulled together a large amount of the a large amount of the community from the surrounding area just to build the thing. Um, there is certainly the possibility that people could have been brought in from a wide area in the landscape in order to conduct ceremonies and things like that. Um, but the relationship between that and things like the emergence of elites is a much more maybe kind of complex and subtle problem. Um, so we're more likely to think about this in the context of, for example, using ritual to kind of solidify your position. Uh, so people are sort of bringing everybody around, and on the one hand, it's a very communal experience. Everybody's up on the hill and all of that. But at the same time, you've also got people uh, who are sort of running things and who are controlling things. And we know there were elites in Ireland during this time period because we have material goods that belong to them. But we, what we don't have, for example, are big palaces. We don't have big cities. We don't have any sort of obvious place where these elites sort of acted out their eliteness. Um, so then we start thinking about, okay, maybe this is taking place in the context of ritual, that maybe this ritual that is drawing together another a, a large group of people from a surrounding area is also providing the framework for elites to kind of emerge and exert a little control and slowly kind of consolidate their position until finally, when you sort of get into the early medieval period in sort of the, you know, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, you begin to see the emergence of people who certainly in the historical record are known as kings. Uh, they're not kings in the sort of typical medieval right. sense, but nevertheless, right. they're sort of very important people. So you're looking so I, at, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. No, you're, you're looking at a ritualistic area, obviously, um, according to your descriptions. What about any evidence that you might have for pat patterns, settlements, and distributions of larger features like edifices or indications of human habitation areas? Do you have any of that in the area, or is the ritual areas completely offset from the uh, habitation areas? Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the interesting things. Uh, the um, We don't have any direct evidence for habitation at the site itself. But keep in mind that the only thing that was really excavated was the summit of the hill, right, that little 10% at the top. Um, so certainly our remote sensing survey turned up a lot of little what little circular features, um, you know, sort of we can, I guess, enclosures would be a nice generic term. Um, right. Is it possible some of those are habitations? I wouldn't rule that out. Um, you know, is it possible that there are some other kinds of evidence up there for totally different things? Um, one of the things that I first personally find fascinating is um, th there was evidence in it, um, so when Bernard Wales excavated the site, they never really um, published like the final report, um, and and so actually I Bernard and I did that together, I, and, and so that came out in 2007. Um, and when I was going through some of this material, I, I suddenly realized there was a lot of stuff up there that was had to do with kind of low level manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some uh, metal slag, for example, from metal production. Uh, there are um, other things which are maybe a little bit more ambiguous, but things like needles, spindle whorls. Um, there's a bone object which might be something like a weaving tool of some sort because um, it has a kind of odd wear pattern on it. Um, and so maybe some textile manufacture. Uh, there's, um, there is one funky piece of slag which... Um, my slag person thought might have something to do with maybe some glass working, although that's very um, tentative. Um, so, so 
they're certainly, I mean, and that doesn't mean they aren't doing rituals, they aren't doing ceremonies. I mean, certainly you can imagine a model uh, scenario where people are going up for ceremonies, but uh, some people are sort of setting up stalls to sell stuff at the entrance. Um, Or, you know, kind of like a church is used for church on Sunday, but during the week they might have a bazaar or something like that. Um, So it certainly, it doesn't rule out the ceremonial idea, but it does suggest that there are other things going on up there that we don't yet fully understand. Understand, uh, and so that's kind of what I find interesting about it, and and why I mean, apart just from being an archaeologist and wanting to know what's there, um, just as a kind of intellectual question, I'm, I, this is clearly a big, important site, and there are clearly ceremonies going on there. But what else is going on there that's kind of providing the context in which people are kind of being drawn together? You know, you talked about um, identity issues earlier. Um, one of the interesting things about these the so-called royal sites is that uh, e- there are uh, four of them, in, and each of them is in an area which later, during the uh, medieval period, becomes a kind of political entity. Um, and so, you know, are we seeing maybe the emergence of some sort of creation of a kind of regional identity that ultimately gets played out as like a kingdom or something along those lines, and what they called the kingdoms uh, in, in the Middle Ages. So, for example, the Kingdom of Leinster, uh, which um, is where Dunalnia is. Um, I, I, I don't think the kingdom was a kingdom in the Iron Age, but it is interesting that this big site is sitting in this place, and there's, there's one in Leinster, uh, there's another one in um, Ulster, the site of Navan, which is uh, identified with the ancient site of Owen Macha, uh, and then there's another one um, over on the other sort of side of the island um, in County Roscommon, which is called, uh, which was in ancient times was called Crochen, but is now known as um, Rathcrohen. Um, and that one is in the ancient kingdom of Connacht. Um, so you sort of wonder, this can't be a coincidence. Um, there's, there's no real evidence that these things are functioning like kingdoms as political entities at this early period. But are we seeing sort of the very beginnings of the kind of coalescence of an, a regional identity that ultimately com- becomes the basis for a political kingdom? So the question is, uh, how close are you to developing some kind of a continuity, either through the stratigraphic record or through the uh, transition that you have, say, in artifact successions or feature successions <clears throat> that can sort of bridge you from that later prehistoric period into something that's more recent, uh, say, through the medieval period and then to, the, to now? Or is, is that one of the questions that you're going to ask rather than one of the answers that you have at this point? That's one of the questions I have because one of the interesting things, one of the, so I, I mentioned three of the royal sites. The fourth one is Tara, um, which is a little better known, but um, Tara and Rathcrohan for sure uh, continued to be used right up through the medieval period. Um, and Tara continued to be a point, an important place for a very long time, and there were specific historical reasons why that happened there. Uh, but nevertheless, um, Denalanya, based on the evidence we have so far, does not seem to have been at all important in the medieval period. There are a few scattered medieval artifacts, um, and there is evidence for for plowing. Um, One of the things that the um, remote sensing turned up was very clear sort of plow marks. Um, And so, but we'd have no idea when those date to, although based on what they look like, they could be medieval plowing just based on the patterns and and the extensive areas and so on. so, so I uh, that makes me wonder: is this uh, was this site the only one that was not used into the Middle Ages? Um, I, so, I one of the things I'm interested in is trying to figure out: is there evidence up there uh, for a later use that this site continued to be used, or indeed? It's actually interesting if it was abandoned. Why was this one abandoned, uh, and the other sites? Um, uh, suddenly become uh, continue to become important. Why not this one? Uh, and and it, it's interesting that the the uh, the ninth century uh, historical documents that we have explicitly tie the kind of waning of importance of these sites, which does not appear to have happened at the other ones. But nevertheless, what they what this one in, one document in particular talks about each of these sites being eclipsed by a Christian site. Um, so the one in in Ulster. Uh, is no longer important because St. Patrick was there and, and stuff like that. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, as I said, the archaeological evidence would suggest that that's not true. Some of these sites did continue to be important into the Middle Ages. But at Denalonia, we don't yet have that evidence. And uh, what's interesting in terms of Christianity is that uh, Kildare, in general, the region of Kildare is where St. Bridget had her monastery. Um, and it was apparently a big and important monastery. Nobody knows exactly where it was. It's never been uh, located, the actual site. Um, but it was apparently a big, uh, major sort of monastic site. Um, it was supposedly, according to documents, a dual house that had men and women. Um, so is this, again, a case where Donalia is an important ceremonial center, but then as Christianity moves into the area, St. Bridget becomes important, more people are converted, uh, ritual life moves into the churches and into the monasteries, and Denali right. isn't important anymore. So it's a, it's a question that it's certainly a question I have. Well, let me ask you another question: uh, Are you engaged in cooperative ventures with any local universities or uh, what used to be called Irish Heritage? I don't know if it's still Irish Heritage or English Heritage, or uh, whether they still have that kind of structure in in Ireland. Um, are, are are you doing any collaborative work with uh, with local populations and universities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the field school itself uh, is we are working in partnership with a group called the Irish Archaeology Field School, um, and that's what they do. They sort of facilitate. Uh, it's run by an archaeologist, uh, several archaeologists, one of whom is a friend of mine from back in the old days, um, uh, Finola O'Carroll, and she um, she and some other archaeologists sort of facilitate kind of these uh, field school projects. Uh, to for uh, people to come over and, and, and run field schools, and they sort of help provide uh, some of the, the infrastructure and help with, like, sorting out accommodation and, and that kind of stuff and, and equipment and so on. Um, so we are, uh, this, this field school we're doing this summer, we're partnering with them. Um, so it's actually a joint effort um, between myself at George Washington University and Pam Crabtree at New York University and uh, Finn O'Carroll of the Irish Archaeology Field School. So um, certainly, you know, we're working with them on that. Um, and then the other thing about Denalonia, which is absolutely makes it the most fun place to work, uh, is there is a very, very active heritage group um, in Kilcullen, which is the, the village that is right at the foot of, of the hill. Um, they, they're, the, they're called the Kilcullen Heritage Group. Um, huh. And um, they, are, they are very, very interested in uh, the local archaeology. They've been begging me for years to come back and dig, and I've been saying, yes, I would love to if I could only get money. So, right, um, of course. They were incredibly, they, they, they were fascinated by um, the remote sensing survey, and I actually, um, Bernard Wales was actually came over at one point, too, um, and uh, we gave, a, uh, we, they actually had a Dunalanya day. It was wonderful, um, and everybody gave talks, and uh, we got together and, and, and talked to people about it, and uh, I've already had two people contact me uh, to ask if they could come up and volunteer this summer uh, from the Kilcullen group, and I, absolutely, yes, we, we're delighted with volunteers. Of course. Um, so yeah, it's it's really great. I I absolutely love that part of it. I think it's an enormous. It makes it so much fun. It really does. What about dispersing the message of that site and other elements of archaeology uh, to the public? Are you engaged in that kind of an endeavor in Ireland or even over here? How how is that working? Well, I mean, I I certainly, I mean, uh, in the sense that I am involved with uh, things like this, um, you know, I, I've already uh, am talking to the people about when I can, um, you know, give some talks for them while we're there this summer. Um, there is uh, another guy I have worked with. Um, I'm not sure what the state of that right now is, but uh, a guy called Podrick Clancy, uh, who uh, was working at the National Museum, who started a website um, specifically for uh, that the Leinster area. Um, looking at uh, Donalian and other sites uh, in the region uh, for anybody who is interested. Uh, so that kind of thing uh, certainly we've done. Um, and uh, actually the, the four royal sites were also nominated for as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Uh-huh. Um, so um, there's, there was a lot of work that was done to put together. I wasn't involved in the specific nomination process, but, uh, but there was a lot of work that was done there that's uh, online, and, and you can sort of look, you know, look for that, um, that uh, put together specifically to kind of make the case that these were um, uh, sort of internationally important. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of I, The Internet's a great thing for that. You know, I, that's the other thing about my life is, you know, there was no Internet when I started in archaeology and other <laughs> right. 
and I kids listening don't know what that means. <laughs> but no, I, that's I know my true. own that's kids true. can't yeah. begin to imagine what life was like without the internet. <laughs> but um, but it's a it's a wonderful tool for that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's just all this information out there, and I I mean I go in and I every now and again I edit the Wikipedia page on Tanalia, um, and you know that kind of stuff. And it's it's one of the things that I think. Archaeology should we should always I think we have a responsibility to do that. We use public money, and I know people say that, but I mean I really believe that. I, I it's not fair to use public money to do this stuff and then not tell people about it. Absolutely, that just I think me. that's a major point that we're trying to bring across. Are you finding a lot of interest within the local community, and where do you see this endeavor going forward? Uh, you mean it in Ireland? You said yeah. the community in Ireland. Um, oh yeah, I mean they're they're um, they're very excited that we're coming back to um, ex- to excavate. And I got to say, it was one of the, it was amazing when uh, we uh, they did this Dunalnia Day for us, um, and uh, they had uh, we had just published uh, the final report from those excavations. And uh, there were people, and this was so. This was in 2007, I think it was, or 2008. Um, no, 2007. Um, and there were people who who showed up to that, who had been on the excavations, who had volunteered, like local community people, um, who had volunteered on the excavations, like in 1968, 1969, stuff like that. Wow. And they came out wow. yeah. um, and got us to sign their copies. They bought copies of this book, God help them, and and you know they <laughs> signed it. And it was just, I I can't tell you how much fun that is. I absolutely adore that part of my job um and so you know i um i i they're they are very active in that kind of stuff um they you know they're they're excited that you know they're coming they've already asked if they can come up and watch while we dig and that's of course the as long as the landowner's okay with it i'm okay with it um and uh, and stuff like that so yeah so i i think there's a lot of that kind of community outreach and and um uh, that's why, you know, you talk about uh, Charles Orther, and I, I don't deny that, you know, the historical archaeology is different, but certainly my experience has been just the opposite, um, that we get an enormous amount of support and interest from the community. I mean, they even, they put up a monument um, to the site right outside Kilcullen, and a local artist uh, made a sculpture that was based on one of the artifacts they found in the earlier excavation, a spearhead, a bronze uh-huh. spearhead, um, and he made this gorgeous monument which it is the coolest thing it's a it's a large it's big stone spear that sits in the middle um of this thing and it has a hole in it and during um i think it's midsummer the sun shines through the hole which is really cool i i don't know if that was important for Donalia in the Iron Age, but it's still cool. Um, one of the local there was a local musician who wrote a song that he played um on the alien pipes um and, and i was so yeah I, you know, like I said, I'm, I, I, there's a lot of community interest in this site. Um, and, uh, I think that's, uh, certainly that's something that, uh, I have very much enjoyed. And, and like I said, I think it makes it a lot of fun. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up the program. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Susan Johnson, archaeologist and anthropologist on the prehistory, prehistory of Ireland, and she is based at George Washington University. So until next time, we will talk to you uh, coming up and uh, a week from now. And thank you so much. And I want to offer a special thanks to my guest, Dr. Susan Johnson. Thank you so much. A lot of fun. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 